and welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Friday, January 27th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. We'll start with today's weather. Today will be not as cold, breezy in the morning, with a high of 37 degrees. Tonight will be cloudy with snow, late, with an accumulation of 1 to 3 inches, and a low of 13 degrees. Saturday will be colder with snow, accumulating to 4 to 8 inches, and a high of 17 degrees. And now we switch over to local and state news stories. Earlywine chosen as superintendent. Caitlin Yamada reports from Sioux City. Rod Earlywine has been selected as Sioux City Community School District's next superintendent. Earlywine is currently serving as the interim superintendent. He was previously the superintendent of the Sergeant Bluff Luton Community School District. The school board deliberated in closed session for two and a half hours before voting on offering Earlywine a contract on open session Thursday. In open session Thursday, he was chosen by the board in a 6-1 to one vote, with Perla Alarcon-Flory against. The other candidate for the position was Giovanni Ponce, the assistant superintendent of high schools for the Houston Independent School District. Dan Greenwell said each candidate had different experiences and both would have brought strength to the district, but needed to pick one. He said the board at the end came to a consensus. We decided that Dr. Earlywine was our choice. We're excited to have him. He's done great things in the last seven months with this district, Greenwell said. Earlywine and the district will now enter into contract negotiations. Pending the negotiations, he will start July 1st. Before resigning in February 2022, Earlywine served as superintendent of the Sergeant Bluff Luton Community School District for 15 years, and before that worked for 12 years as Sergeant Bluff Luton's middle school principal. He was selected as interim superintendent in April 2022 and officially started in July 2022. He holds a doctorate in education administration from the University of South Dakota in Vermilion, a specialist degree in educational administration, and a bachelor's degree in education from Drake University, and a master's degree in education administration from the University of Northern Iowa. A few of the changes Earlywine has made as interim superintendent include rebuilding the culture and climate of the school district, putting in new discipline policies, adding reading back in the middle schools, starting to overhaul the special education program, and revamping the English language learners program, Greenwell said. Dr. Earlywine, in our opinion, deserved a chance to continue on and continue to improve and rebuild our district for the next several years, he said. During public interviews on Wednesday, Earlywine said he officially applied for the superintendent position because of his experience so far with the Sioux City Community School District. What I've learned over the past seven months is this is a very, very good school district, Earlywine said. We have great staff, we have people that truly care about the students, and they want to see our students succeed. A community member asked if Earlywine saw the position as a short-term job or a long-term role. He said there is a misconception that he retired from Sergeant Bluff, but in reality, he resigned because he felt he needed to do something different. I never retired. I'm not ready to retire, Earlywine said. Each of the board members took a moment to discuss the decision that was made. All of the board members said both candidates were highly qualified, and the board had a very extensive conversation on what the district needed and what the feedback from the community was. Each said it was a difficult decision. Perla 
Alarcon Flory said all of the board members spent hours of research to come to a decision and took into account all of the feedback from community members, students, parents, and staff. Bernie Scalero said there was a robust discussion weighing the needs of the district and the board did the best they could in the best interest of the community. The district received 23 applications for the position vacated by Paul Gaussman in June 2022 for a job as superintendent of the Lincoln Public Schools. With the help of the recruiting firm hired by the district, GR Recruiting, the school board narrowed it down to five candidates who they interviewed, eventually narrowing it down to the current two. Ponce and Earlywine participated in public interviews on Wednesday, as well as interviews with the school board and special interest groups such as students and teachers. Lawmakers advance bill limiting length of freight trains in Iowa. Tom Barton reports from Des Moines. A state law advanced Thursday by a three-member panel of House lawmakers would limit the length of freight trains traveling through Iowa. The subcommittee voted unanimously to forward House Study Bill 88 to the full House Transportation Committee for passage that would limit the length of freight trains operating in the state to 8,500 feet, or roughly 1.6 miles. An identical bill cleared initial review in the 2022 Iowa legislature but died in committee. Having been stuck, like we all have at a railroad crossing, once I get past 100 cars, I get pissy. I do understand that, subcommittee member Representative Brent Segrist, Republican from Council Bluffs, said. I'm inclined to move it forward, although I'm not sure I will fully support it in committee yet. I want to hear more. I have some questions, but at the same time, I'm not totally opposed to it. (laughs) Freight trains have been getting longer, nearly three miles in some cases. A U.S. Government Accountability Office report from 2019 found the average length increased by about 25% since 2008, with average lengths of near 1.4 miles in 2017. That has raised concerns that trains may block traffic more often at road crossings, impeding emergency responders, and prompting unsafe pedestrian behavior, such as climbing through stopped trains. Chris Smith, state director for Smart TD, a union for transportation workers, said 1,468 blocked crossings were reported in Iowa in 2022. Of those, 502 were reported blocked for at least an hour, and several reported blocked for more than a day, he said. Braking and other operations can also be more complex for these longer trains, according to the GAO report. Smith, too, said many of today's train cars were not built and Iowa's railroad infrastructure never designed to pull more than 100 to 135 cars. As a result, coupling mechanisms have failed in many cases due to increased stress and fatigue of the metal, Smith said. Now they're running 290-car pull trains, he said. The materials, designs, statistics, and safety were never tested to the lengths that they're producing today. Railroad traffic through Iowa also could increase soon with the merger of Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern. Some officials and residents in cities along the route, including in the Quad Cities and Muscatine, have expressed concern about the increase in the number of trains as well as the increase in their length. We have some problem in eastern Iowa with the CPKCS thing, especially for my town in Comanche, has a problem with the long trains, said subcommittee member Representative Tom Dieterman, a Republican from Clinton. 
so I'm inclined to take it to committee for more discussion. Representatives for the nation's largest railroads argue federal law preempts state and local attempts to regulate railroad activities. Under the U.S. Constitution, interstate commerce is regulated by the federal government. All of these arguments are persuasive, and they lead to a federal solution and a federal solution only, said lobbyist Michael Triplett, who represents Union Pacific Railroad. Should Iowa or any other state pass conflicting standards regulating the activities of railroads, the supply chain gets wrecked, Triplett said. (laughs) If there is to be a solution that is broad enough that can handle the questions of interstate commerce, which is the exclusive jurisdiction of the federal government, this should be handled by the Surface Transportation Board or the Federal Railway Administration at the federal level, he said. The railroads also contend trains of all lengths have been safely operated for years and that longer trains maximize resources and reduce fuel and labor costs. We have a facility in western Iowa where we do testing while the trains are going through on the track. It's innovative. If there's something that needs to be fixed, we fix it, Triplett said. I don't want you to be left with the impression that we ignore things and we just drag lots of cars through here. That makes no economic sense for us. It makes no logistical sense for us because cars that can't run because we've broken them are cars that we can't use to serve our customers. Limiting the length of trains would only lead to more trains running through communities, said Brad Epperly, a lobbyist representing BNSF Railway Company. I don't think that's going to improve your safety, Epperly said. Smith argued the longer trains are part of a corporate strategy that has driven workers to the breaking point and led to a decimated railroad workforce that is impeding efforts to transport goods. Over the last six years, Class I freight railroads, which include BNSF Railway, CSX Transportation, Kansas City Southern Railway, Norfolk Southern and Union Pacific, have hemorrhaged a combined 45,000 workers, according to the Surface Transportation Board. That's nearly 29% of their workforce. Epperly argued the union could have negotiated for shorter train lengths during recent collectively bargaining over a new contract, but chose not to. Congress last month passed legislation binding companies and workers to a proposed settlement reached in September, but rejected by some of the 12 unions involved in order to avert a nationwide rail strike. The Iowa bill now moves to the full House Transportation Committee for consideration. Meet back on the table for SNAP users. Opponents say work requirements are too burdensome. Aaron Murphy reports from Des Moines. With meat purchases now back on the table, the debate at the Iowa Capitol over proposed additional restrictions on the food assistance program known as SNAP turned to more familiar territory, eligibility, and work requirements. Republican state lawmakers advanced legislation Thursday that for the SNAP program, a joint operation of the state and federal governments, would require an extra layer of identity verification for recipients, require the state to examine records to ensure recipients are still eligible, and require recipients to work at least 20 hours a week, with some exceptions. Technically, the bill also still contains a provision that would limit SNAP users to only foods approved for the WIC program for expectant mothers, which would eliminate meat, fish, poultry, nuts, and many cooking essentials. But Republicans say they plan to amend it and eliminate only candy and soda, except for zero-calorie sodas. 
Despite that pledge to constrain the food restrictions, the proposal found plenty of detractors at its first legislative hearing at the Capitol. Of the 40 organizations that are formally registered as either supporting or opposing the bill, 37 oppose the proposal, while just three support it, according to state lobbying records. Opponents include food assistance and charity groups, like food banks, periocal groups, and health care organizations. The three supporters are groups that advocate for limited government and spending and lower taxes. United Way of Iowa Advocacy Officer Dave Stone said the organization opposes the legislation because of a number of provisions that will create additional barriers for eligible families who need these benefits. Cindy Peterson, a lobbyist for the Iowa Food Bank Association, called the proposal for new testing of a SNAP recipient's financial worth very burdensome. Peterson said Iowa Department of Health and Human Services Director Kelly Garcia has done a good job reducing administrative burdens in the department and reducing the error rate in programs like SNAP. She also, <clears throat> she also noted that Pennsylvania in 2015 ditched its asset test for SNAP after a three-year pilot program that saw administrative costs outweigh any reductions in spending. By eliminating the asset test, the state saved $3.5 million annually, state officials said according to news reports. Many states have moved away from an asset limit because it's an administrative burden, Peterson said. Proponents of tighter restrictions on food assistance eligibility say the added measures are needed to rein in program costs and ensure the people who are receiving the assistance are the ones who genuinely need it. SNAP is funded by the federal government and jointly administered by the federal and state governments to individuals and families who meet income restrictions. Iowa's share of the program's administrative costs in the 2020 budget year was $22 million, and its average administrative cost of $27.84 per case per month was the 18th lowest among U.S. states, according to federal data. House Republicans moved the SNAP bill just two days after approving $345 million in new state spending on private school financial aid, a program that has no income restrictions. The intention of this bill is to ensure Iowa's welfare programs are sustainable and remain available for the Iowans who truly need them. These programs provide a necessary safety net for low-income Iowans, and the legislature wants to make sure the Iowans receiving assistance from these programs are truly eligible. Representative Tom Janieri, a Republican from Lamar's who ran the hearing, said in his emailed comments on the bill, This bill protects the taxpayer by codifying practices to authenticate identity of applicants and requiring verification information prior to enrollment, Janieri wrote. This bill importantly requires Iowa's welfare program eligibility processes to be merged into one single system that will verify all income information of applicants and make sure there is no fraud in the program. Iowa's average monthly SNAP participation of roughly 279000 in the 2022 budget year was the lowest since 2008, according to federal data. Any legislation that would change Iowa's SNAP program would require a federal approval. With the two Republicans on a three-member legislative panel signing off on the bill, House File 3 advanced to the full House Health and Human Services Committee.
City CIP budget proposed at $468 million. Council to consider upgrades, stadium seating, airport changes. Dolly A. Butts reports from Sioux City. The Sioux City Council will review some of the biggest spending segments proposed for the 2023-24 fiscal year budget, which includes $66.1 million for annual airport capital projects, annual infrastructure reconstruction, annual resurfacing, and more. The council members during a day-long hearing Saturday will get a first public review of the projects planned in the Capital Improvement Program, or CIP, budget, which begins July 1st. The $66.1 million proposal is a decrease from the current budget year's $99.9 million capital budget. Additionally, the $66.1 million is the first year of the proposed five-year CIP, which would spend $468.9 million over the fiscal years through 2024 through 2028. Over the combined five years, the CIP would direct $104 million to annual airport capital projects, $45.1 million to annual infrastructure reconstruction, and $15.9 million to annual resurfacing. The proposed fiscal year 2024 CIP anticipates 49.8% use of the city's debt capacity at the beginning of the year. According to city documents, the program calls for the issuance of $23.3 million in new general obligation debt and payment of $24.2 million in existing general obligation debt. The proposed fiscal year 2024 debt issuance and payments decrease the percentage of debt capacity used to 49.4%. The documents state that the largest capital projects for the Sioux, for Sioux Gateway Airport are typically runway reconstruction projects. In fiscal year 2024, a total of $3.76 million is being requested for annual airport capital projects. That budget includes terminal infrastructure improvements, design of taxiway A realignment, and replacement of Jet Bridge 2. According to the documents, the projects are subject to receiving federal and or state funds that, on average, pay 90% of the cost, with a 10% local match for federal projects, and 50% to 100% of the cost, with a 0% to 50% match for state projects. The Sioux City Convention Center is seeking $500,000 in fiscal year 2024 for building improvements. City documents state that Caldwell ceiling tiles in the atrium ceiling are are failing and need to be replaced. The Parks and Recreation Department is requesting $450,000 for stadium seat replacement at Lewis and Clark Park and $175,000 for caulking under seats in fiscal year 2024, according to the documents. The Sioux City Explorers Ball Club and Park are sources of community pride and joy. This project allows for the implementation of improvement programs to ensure a quality facility for future years, the documents state. Last September, the Sioux City Council, in a split decision, voted against a resolution adopting plans, specifications, form of contract, and estimated cost for the replacement of 2,300 more plastic seats at the park. The vote was 4-1, to one, with Mayor Pro Tem Dan Moore casting the lone vote in favor of the project. 
which the city's engineer estimated would cost $433,727. Before the vote, Sioux City Parks and Recreation Director Matt Salvatore told the council that the city budgeted around $135,000 to cover the replacement of 770 seats. Those seats were supposed to arrive last August, but Salvatore said they were still in production. Those seats are expected to be installed in the spring. (coughs) Last April, Explorers owner John Roost told the journal the team might not play in the city-owned Lewis and Clark Park during the 2022 season if the city didn't replace all 3,070 box and general admission seats. Roost said the deteriorating condition of the plastic seats presents a danger to fans and a financial liability for the team and city. The Explorer's home opener went on as scheduled on May 17th. The Events Facilities Department is requesting $300,000 for tuck pointing at the Tyson Events Center and $100,000 for LED lighting for the city-owned facility in fiscal year 2024. Plans call for a large chunk of the Tyson's interior and or exterior lighting to be knocked out in fiscal year 2024, according to the documents. Our strategy has been to update sections of the building at a time to create a more energy-efficient building, the documents state. Our tuck point project was pushed back a year after the cost exceeded the architect and our prices expectations. Judge denies King's motion to reduce damage award. Nick Hytrek reports from Sioux City. A federal judge has denied a request made by Steve King's attorneys to reduce the amount of damages a jury ordered the former U.S. congressman's campaign to pay for using a copyrighted photo in the Success Kid meme without the owner's permission in a 2020 fundraising ad. U.S. District Judge C.J. Williams also denied a motion by the photo's owner to amend the judgment and find King liable for his King for Congress campaign's copyright infringement. In denying King's motion, Williams said the jury was not given instructions it could reduce damages to as low as $200, and King's lawyers didn't object to the lack of the instruction during the trial effectively waiving any argument that jurors should have been told they could award a lower damage amount. There is no guarantee the jury would have reduced the award below $750, let alone to $200, Williams wrote. After a four-day trial in federal court in Sioux City in November, jurors ordered King for Congress to pay $750 in damages to Laney Griner finding the campaign had infringed upon the Florida woman's copyright when using the photo of her son, Sam, in the Success Kid meme, so-called because the picture of the then-toddler captured him with a determined look on his face and a fistful of sand raised in a triumphant motion. Griner sought $150,000 in damages. The ad was posted on a Republican fundraising site as King, a Republican from Kiron, Iowa, was running for re-election. He later lost in the primary to Randy Feenstra, who won the seat in the November election. Though the ad was taken down from the fundraising site and King's Facebook and campaign pages hours later, after Griner demanded its removal, she later sued King and his campaign for copyright infringement, and her son sued for invasion of privacy. Jurors determined King for Congress 
did infringe on the copyright, but did so unknowingly and awarded Laney Griner the statutory minimum $750. The jury determined King himself did not infringe upon Griner's copyright and also found in Sam Griner's claim for invasion of privacy that King for Congress did not use the photo without his consent. Though Griner and his mother both testified no one from the campaign had sought their permission to use it. After the trial, King's lawyers filed a motion to reduce the amount to $200 because the jury found the infringement was committed unknowingly. Griner's attorney also filed a post-trial motion, asking Williams to amend the judgment to find King was liable for the copyright infringement of his campaign committee. Griner's attorney argued trial evidence proved King for Congress was acting on King's behalf, making him liable for infringement too. King testified at trial he was unaware of the photo's use, and Williams said in his ruling denying Griner's motion that King's son and campaign manager Jeff King also testified to the separation of King from his campaign committee. Williams said it was a reasonable finding by jurors that King was not involved in fundraising decisions, though another jury could reasonably find otherwise. King has appealed to the jury's judgment Pardon me, King has appealed the jury's judgment to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Appeals Court upholds Woodbury County 2019 murder conviction. Nick Hytrek reports from Des Moines. The Iowa Court of Appeals has upheld the murder conviction of a Sioux City man who strangled a woman inside a hotel room before setting a fire inside it. A three-judge panel on Wednesday denied Jordan Henry's claim of insufficient evidence of malice aforethought to support his second-degree murder conviction for the January 24, 2019 strangulation of Elizabeth Bockholt. The trial court's findings and inferences are fully supported by the record. Chief Judge Thomas said in the 13-page ruling, which also upheld District Judge Stephen Andreasen's rulings that Henry could not rely on methamphetamine-induced psychosis as a complete defense and had that Henry failed to prove his insanity defense. Andreasen, who heard the evidence and reached the verdict because Henry had waived his right to a jury trial, found Henry guilty in November 2020 of second-degree murder and first-degree arson. Andreessen later sentenced Henry, 33, to 75 years in prison with a mandatory minimum of 35 years before he's eligible for parole. Henry did not appeal the arson conviction. Henry is tried for first-degree murder, which carries a mandatory lifetime prison sentence, but Andreessen ruled the combination of Henry's meth use and psychosis prevented him from forming the specific intent to kill Bockholt leaving the state unable to establish the necessary threshold to find him guilty of first-degree murder. On the night of her death, Bockholt visited Henry in a room at the Wingate by Windham, eight days after Henry had been paroled from prison after serving time for theft. Romantic partners prior to Henry's conviction, the two smoked meth in the room before Bockholt strangled her. He then set a fire in the room and left. Police and firefighters responding to the fire found Bockholt, 40, of Hinton, Iowa, unconscious and under a pile of bedding. She was later pronounced dead at a hospital. Henry was arrested about half a mile away by officers responding to a call of a suspicious person in the area. He was identified as a suspect on surveillance video and by witnesses who saw him leaving the hotel. And finally, 
Bird flu found in Buena Vista County. From Storm Lake. Highly pathogenic avian influenza has been found in a commercial turkey flock in Buena Vista County. The Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship and the United States Department of Agriculture, or USDA, Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, or APHIS, announced Wednesday. This is the first case of bird flu found in an Iowa flock since the new year. The most recent case before this was in a commercial turkey flock in Ida County on December 12th. Buena Vista County has been hard hit by bird flu since it first appeared at the beginning of March last year. This is the seventh time the flu has been found in the county since the outbreak began. Six of those outbreaks were in commercial turkey flocks. This latest outbreak is the 31st reported in the state since the virus was first detected here. The first set of outbreaks subsided in early May before picking back up in October. The Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship has not identified any of the impacted operators. Highly pathogenic avian influenza is not believed to be a health threat to humans and it's still safe to eat poultry products, according to the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship. Cooking poultry to an internal temperature of 165 degrees kills bacteria and viruses. Signs of an infected flock include a suddenly elevated incidence of bird deaths, lethargic birds or birds with declining appetite, poor egg production, purple or bluish discoloration of the wattle, comb and legs, coughing or sneezing birds or birds with difficulty breathing, stumbling birds, and diarrhea in the birds. Producers who suspect bird flu in their flocks are advised to contact their veterinarian immediately. Possible cases must also be reported to the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship at 515-281-5305. Once again, you are listening to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Friday, January 27th, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to today's obituaries. Kenneth J. Back, Jr., that's B-A-A-C-K, 53, of Lamars, Iowa, died Tuesday, January 24th. Burial will be private at Calvary Cemetery in Lamars. Visitation will be January 29th from 4 to 7 p.m. at Mauer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamars. And Harvey Everett Begnoche, Sr., that's B-E-G-N-O-C-H-E, Sr., 91, of Lamars, died Tuesday, January 24th. Services will be January 30th at 10.30 a.m. at All Saints Catholic Parish, St. James Catholic Church in Lamars. Burial will be at Calvary Cemetery in Lamars. Visitation will be January 29th from 2 to 5 p.m. at Rexwinkle Funeral Home in Lamars. And now we switch to national and world news. U.S. economic growth slows, spending resilient as mortgage rate number of jobless claims drop. From Washington, the U.S. economy expanded at a 2.9% annual pace from October through December, ending 2022 with momentum despite the pressure of high interest rates and widespread fears of a looming recession. Thursday's estimate from the Commerce Department showed that the nation's gross domestic product, the broadest gauge of economic output, decelerated last quarter from the 3.2% annual growth rate it posted from July through September. Most economists think the economy will slide into a mild recession. 
consumer spending, which funnels about 70% of the economy, pardon me, which fuels about 70% of the economy, rose at a sturdy 2.1% annual rate from October through December, down slightly from 2.3% in the previous quarter. Federal government spending also helped lift GDP. But with higher mortgage rates undercutting residential real estate, investment in housing plummeted at a 27% annual rate for a second straight quarter. The average long-term U.S. mortgage rate fell to its lowest level in over four months. Mortgage buyer Freddie Mac reported Thursday the average on the benchmark 30-year rate inched down to 6.13% from 6.15% last week. A year ago, it was 3.55%. For all of 2022, GDP expanded 2.1% after growing 5.9% in 2021. The economy's expected slowdown is an intended consequence of the Federal Reserve's aggressive series of interest rate increases meant to reduce growth and crush inflation. The resilience of the U.S. job market has been a major surprise. Last year, employers added 4.5 million jobs, second only to the 6.7 million added in 2021 in government records going back to 1940. Last month's unemployment rate, 3.5%, matched a 53-year low. The number of Americans filing for unemployment benefits for the week ending January 21st fell to 186,000 from 192,000 the previous week, the Labor Department reported Thursday. Triple-demic surge of RSV, flu, and COVID is on the decline. Hannah Webster reports from Pittsburgh. You can remove the term triple-demic from your vocabulary for now. As respiratory viruses ticked upward in late November, health officials braced for what they called a triple-demic of RSV, flu, and COVID-19 cases leading to widespread infection, causing a flood of patients to hospitals and leading to hours-long wait times. That winter surge represented a respiratory virus peak, and experts say cases are now declining. Nationally, the week ending January 14th saw 72,119 total respiratory cases, down from 235,850 the week of December 3rd when cases peaked. COVID-19 dashboards showed a slight uptick in infections and hospitalizations in November and December, the same time flu and RSV were surging, and patients were visiting hospitals with respiratory complaints. Preliminary data for January shows COVID-related deaths have dipped. In the past month or two, we've seen a fairly steady decline in the number of children positive for various viruses, said Dr. Raymond Petetti, Chief of Pediatric Emergency Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Children's Hospital. Data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows that nationwide, infants and school-age kids were hit hard by this respiratory virus peak, specifically flu and RSV. We've been able to manage ER volume by adding resources like staffing ICU units and recommending that patients with mild flu and RSV symptoms see their primary care providers instead, he said. The decline in RSV in the community has helped us tremendously. Dr. Don Whiting, Chief Medical Officer for Allegheny Health Network, said many of the COVID-19 cases caught in his network's hospitals have been a result of secondary diagnoses, wherein patients check in for other reasons, like surgery or diabetes, and test positive for the virus. They're not necessarily symptomatic, he said. People are surprised. 
This can be partially attributed to Omicron variants causing generally milder infections, although recent research shows there's still a risk of developing long COVID. Flu arrived early this season with higher-than-normal cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. Some health officials are bracing for a second wave, as is typical because the two main flu strains, influenza A and B, peak at different times. I am expecting an influenza B season sometime in the next month, Patetti said, but there's no way to predict what the spike will look like. Alexander Sunderman, an infectious disease epidemiologist at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and assistant professor of infectious diseases with a Ph.D. in epidemiology, said a second flu wave is possible but not guaranteed. The early flu peak with more flu cases than previous years may have protected against that. It's hard to say what's going to happen, he said, but we are going to keep monitoring for it. Sunderman said they'll keep observing trends to make the best recommendations. Those recommendations right now include much of the usual. Staying home if you feel sick, washing your hands, getting vaccinated, and masking in crowded places if preferred. If you're going to be in a crowded environment with a lot of people, it's certainly reasonable to mask, Whiting said. The World Health Organization, in a Q&A last updated January 13th, stated that people in public should wear a mask when in a crowded, enclosed, or poorly ventilation sick area, for example, if you are unable to maintain distance or if you have any doubts regarding the quality of ventilation. Additionally, people who are immunocompromised should wear them, as well as people who live in places with low vaccine uptake. A new CDC report exploring reasons for not getting vaccinated found that many people simply didn't know the bivalent booster was available or that they were eligible. The bivalent booster provides protection against emerging Omicron subvariants and severe illness. According to the Food and Drug Administration, the Moderna bivalent booster is available. A. To people ages 6 months to 5 years of age who have received their primary Moderna series 2 months ago or longer. B. To people 6 years and up, 2 months or more after any authorized COVID-19 vaccine. The Pfizer bivalent booster is available to people aged five years and up, two months or more after any authorized COVID-19 vaccine. Batetti reassured that the vaccine is incredibly safe, no matter what you read on social media. And if you're using an at-home antigen test to detect a possible COVID-19 infection, Sunderman advised that a negative test might mean it's not positive yet. Antigen tests are not as sensitive as PCR tests and require a higher viral load to detect presence of the virus. It could also be possible that mild symptoms are reflective of a different virus like flu or RSV. And finally, DHS sees a huge drop in Haitian, Cuban, Venezuelan, Nicaraguan arrivals at the country's southern border. Michael Wilner reports from Washington. The Department of Homeland Security recorded a precipitous drop in encounters with migrants attempting to cross the U.S.-Mexico border illegally this month, the department said, putting January on track to see the lowest level of monthly border encounters since the beginning of the Biden administration. The drop comes after migrant arrivals reached record levels for Joe Biden's presidency in December. In a statement, DHS officials on Wednesday pardon me. In a statement, DHS officials on Wednesday 
credited its policy announced earlier this month that introduced a new parole program for Haitians, Cubans, and Nicaraguans, offering potential migrants a new legal pathway to the United States while cracking down on illegal entries. The program has been available to Venezuelans for several months and led to a steep drop in Venezuelan arrivals at the U.S.-Mexico border. Preliminary DHS numbers from January show that encounters of Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans crossing unlawfully at the southwest border declined 97% compared to December, the agency said. Encounters with individuals from these countries dropped from a seven-day average of 3,367 per day on December 11th to a seven-day average of just 115 on January 24th. The agency said that the decline in encounters from those populations occurred even as encounters of other non-citizens are returning to customary levels after a typical seasonal decline over the holidays. Texas, Florida, and 18 other states are suing DHS and the immigration agencies it oversees, saying the federal government is abusing its power and that the initiative went beyond the limits of when the agency could use the parole process. And now we turn to local sports stories. Raiders knock off number 18 Mustangs. Northwestern men win at Alley Gym for first time since 2016. Dave Driesen reports from Sioux City. Coming up with a key defensive stop with 10 seconds left in the game, the Northwestern men held on for a 78-74 victory over league leader Morningside Wednesday night, winning at Alley Gym for the first time since 2016. The loss, Morningside's first at home this season, snapped a seven-game winning streak and knocked the Mustangs out of sole possession of first place in the Great Plains Athletic Conference. Number 18-ranked Morningside fell into a tie with Jamestown, both with both teams at 10-3. Northwestern, which swept the season series with the Mustangs, moved to just a game back at 9-4. <laughs> I thought our guys did a great job of preparing well. We took care of the basketball and to only have 11 turnovers against Morningside and keep them from getting out in transition is important, Northwestern head coach Chris Corver said. The Raiders built up an early lead, jumping ahead 16-5 through the first four minutes in part to -to back-to-back threes from Connor Geddes. Despite keeping their advantage in double figures through the opening 10 minutes, Morningside stormed back putting together a 16-3 run in six minutes. Jack Dotzler hit a three to make the score 26-24 with eight minutes and three seconds to play in the first half. The teams would continue to battle for the top spot, with Northwestern taking a 43-38 lead into the halftime break. After the intermission, Northwestern pushed their lead back to 11 on consecutive threes from Craig Sturk, with 16 minutes and 28 seconds in regulation. The largest lead of the game for the Raiders was 12, after a Matt Onken and one with nine minutes to play. Trailing 70-58, to 58, Morningside went on another run, putting together a 10-2 stretch over five minutes to close the gap to 72-68 to 68 with 3.27 left. With less than a minute on the clock, Morningside had the ball with a chance to tie or take the lead. The Mustangs had a second-chance opportunity off of a missed layup, but a missed three led to a run-out from Zach Lefebvre, who gave Northwestern a two-possession lead with 12 seconds on the clock. 
Morningside scored on its next possession to again come within two points, but after a foul, Grant de Mulinaire hit both free throws to seal the win for the Raiders. Northwestern's Dylan Carlson led all scorers with 22 points, making six three-pointers. Onken added 15 points. Sterk finished with 12 points, 8 rebounds, 6 assists, 5 blocks, and 4 steals. I think Sterk was an animal in the paint tonight, Corver said. He had a couple of game-changing plays for us tonight. <laughs> Dotzler and Eli Doble led Morningside in scoring with 15 points each. Aiden Vanderloo came off the bench to add 12, and Brendan Buckley had 11. Doble hauled down a team-high nine rebounds, and Vanderloo dished out three assists. The Northwestern men won at Morningside for the first time since November 22, 2016. It was also the Raiders' first road win over a top-25 opponent since beating number 12 Briarcliff on February 28, 2017. The Raiders and Mustangs each play Jamestown in their next contest. Northwestern, which improved to 16-5 overall, faces the number 11-ranked Jamestown Jimmies at 3.45 p.m. Saturday. Morningside, which fell to 16-4 overall, travels to Jamestown for a 6 p.m. contest Monday night. The game was rescheduled from earlier this season due to a winter storm. State Births at Stake Friday. Tyson Event Center to host regionals for 300-plus high school girl wrestlers. Dave Dreesen reports from Sioux City. Over 300 girls high school wrestlers from across western Iowa, their coaches and fans, will gather in Sioux City Friday for a historical event. The Tyson Event Center will host two of the eight Super Regionals for the state's first sanctioned all-girls wrestling postseason tournament. The top four wrestlers in each weight class from each region will advance to the Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union's inaugural state tournament. February 2nd through 3rd at the Extreme Arena in Coralville. High school girls have been wrestling on boys' teams for decades. Under pressure from advocates, the IGHSGAU agreed last year to give girls their own sanctioned teams and tournaments. I think it's long overdue, said Trevor Case, head coach for the girls' wrestling team at Sioux City North. I coached boys for over 20 years, and in the last 20 years, we have... Pardon me, we always seemed to have one or two girls that participated. This is a much better situation. It's a more even playing field. Over a 100 schools in the state are offering girls' wrestling programs, including nearly two dozen in the journal circulation area. Around 45 teams in western Iowa were assigned to one of the two regions at the Tyson. A few, a few schools have just one or two wrestlers, while a handful are expected to fill each of the 13 weight classes, including area schools Lamars and Ridgeview. Sioux City West, which has a nine-girl roster, was assigned to the 22-team Region 1, while Sioux City East and North, with six and nine wrestlers, respectively, were assigned to the 23-team Region 2. Journal circulation schools in Region 1 also include Boyden Hull, Rock Valley, Central Lion, George Little, pardon me, Central Lion, George, Little Rock, Denison, Schleiswig, Okaboji, Hartley, Melvin, Sanborn, Pocahontas area, Sheldon, South O'Brien, and Sioux Center. Area schools in Region 2 include East Sac County, Emmitsburg, GTRA, Lamars, MOC Floyd Valley, Ridgeview, Sioux Central, Spencer, Spirit Lake Park, West Lion, and Western Christian. 
Unlike other state-sanctioned sports, the girls' wrestlers will compete for state championships in a single class. Ridgeview has three top contenders for spots in the state tourney. At 125 points, junior Tatum Shepard is ranked number two at 125 pounds by IowaWrestle.com. In Friday's regional, Shepard could face Council Bluffs Lewis Central senior Sophie Barnes, ranked number three at 125 pounds. Shepard's teammate, junior Izzy Deeds, is ranked number two at 145 pounds. Another Raptor, junior Jolyn Tiefenthaler, is ranked number five at 115 pounds. Tiefenthaler recently avenged an earlier loss to the number five wrestler Kaylee Spencer of Spencer. The 115 weight class in Region 2 in Sioux City figures to be one of the most competitive in the state. Riverside, Oakland sophomore Molly Allen is ranked number one, and Sioux City North junior Molly Seck is ranked number six. Seck, who has a record of 28-3, is one of three North wrestlers considered top contenders for state tournament spots. At 135 pounds, senior Elizabeth Rubio has a 31-4 record for the Stars. North Danica Peterson, who went 27-7 mostly at 135 pounds this season, Kay said, most regular season tournaments allowed teams to enter more than one wrestler at each weight, which allowed Rubio and Peterson to both compete at 135. Because the state regionals allows just one wrestler per class, Peterson will drop down a weight to 130 pounds on Friday, Kay said. In addition to Kaylee Spencer at 115 pounds, three other Spencer wrestlers are top candidates for state tournament berths. Junior Olivia Huckfeld is the number one wrestler at 235 pounds, according to IAW, pardon me, IAWrestle.com. 10. Uh, sophomore Shaley Sutherland is number 10 at 135 pounds, and junior Kaylee Noctegal is number 9 at 190 pounds. West Lion junior Jaina Turwe is top ranked at 190. The Wildcats and Tigers are both in Region 2. Each regional starts at 11 a.m. Friday at the Tyson. And finally, in a college girls basketball, Raiders hot shooting sinks Mustangs. Briarcliff women beat Midland. Charger men lose. From Sioux City, the Northwestern women drained shots throughout the game against Morningside Wednesday night. The Red Raiders rarely missed, hitting a record 72.2% from the floor for the game as they routed the Mustangs 93-65 on their home court. The 28-point margin of victory marked Northwestern's second-largest victory over Morningside in program history and their first win in Alley Gym since 2018. The game was tight in the first half, with neither team leading by more than five points in the opening quarter. Morningside led 21-19 after the first period, and trailed by just one, 42-41 at halftime. The Raiders got off to a fast start after the intermission, with Taylor Vanderveld scoring the first five points. A 7-2 run gave NWC the 53-48 lead and forced another Mustang timeout. A Mustang turnover and layup by Emily Danner gave Northwestern a 58-50 lead. Northwestern went on to dominate the rest of the third quarter, using a 15-7 run the rest of the period to take a 16-point lead. 
The Red Raiders shot 14 for 15, or 93.3%, from the floor to take a commanding 73-57 lead into the fourth quarter. For the night, the Raiders shot 39 for 54 from the floor as they set a new single-game program record for field goal percentage in a game. The 28-point win nearly matched the Raiders' largest margin of victory over the Mustangs, a 29-point win in 2019. We really settled in defensively in the second half, head coach Kristen Rotert said. Morningside is a great offensive team, and I thought we did a good job limiting their key players and containing them much better one-on-one. Five Raiders notched double-digit points. Maddie Jones with 19, Molly Shaney with 18, Taylor Vanderveld with 15, Emily Danner with 12, and Ellie Karolovitz with 10. Sophia Peppers led Morningside with 12 points, followed by Olivia Larson with 10. McKenna Sims had a team-high six rebounds for the Mustangs. Morningside, the preseason GPAC favorite, fell to 8-7 and seven in the conference and 13-8 and eight overall. Northwestern, number 20 ranked in NAIA, raised its record to 10-4 and four in the GPAC and 15-5 and five overall. Briarcliff 71, Midland 60. Kagan Held led the number 18 ranked Charger women with 21 points. Peyton Wingert added 14 and Madison Rogan. Briarcliff improved to 16-5 and five overall and 12-3 and three in the GPAC, two games behind league leader Dort. After trading baskets through the opening minutes, Briarcliff went on a 7 to nothing run to take their first lead of the game with just four minutes left to go in the first period. Midland battled to bring the game back to a two-point contest after a 4 nothing run of their own, but the Chargers boosted their lead back up to four points with six seconds left before the end of the half. Briarcliff built the lead to 14 by the end of the third quarter and opened the final stanza with a three-pointer to lead by 17 points. After Midland started to close the gap, Briarcliff responded with a timely three and free, th- and free throws to seal the road victory. For the game, Briarcliff was 26 for 64, or 40.6%, from the field, including eight made shots from behind the arc. The Chargers also were 11 for 17 at the free throw line. And finally, Midland 84, Briarcliff 73. The Warrior men controlled the glass on both ends and held off a late charge from the Chargers Wednesday night. After trailing 28 to 27, with two minutes and 37 left in the half, Midland closed out the period with a 10-0 run to take a 35-28 lead to the locker room. Coming out of the intermission, Midland went on a 9-0 scoring run, which completed an almost nine-minute stretch where they outscored the Chargers 25-3. The Warriors out-rebounded their opponents 47-30 and had 21 assists on 33 made buckets. Quinn Vesey topped Briarcliff's scoring with 17 points. Connor Groves added 13, and Nick Hoyt had 10. The Chargers dropped to 8 and 15 overall, and 4 and 9 in the GPAC. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, January 27th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.